There are some scriptures that stick in your throat a little bit more when you are instructed to respond. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Some scriptures we'd rather not be included in the story. Some that when the preacher reads what he is supposed to be preaching on that Sunday, he says, really, couldn't we swap it out for something else? Friends, there is so much Joseph's story and so much easier than this part. I mean, I've seen the musical. Perhaps you have as well. It starts and it's all sorts of fun and there's a bunch of brothers and sure he gets thrown into a pit, but it's lots of fun and there's singing and there's dancing as they're ripping his garment and getting blood on it. Well, and then there's that, that whole dream moment with the king and if it's in the musical, well, then the king sounds kind of like Elvis and that's fun. But this moment, this moment is difficult. But there is perhaps something of value to be found in those things that force us to look at the difficult parts of Scripture, which may not be so foreign to us and in fact may be uncomfortably real, an uncomfortable reflection of the world in which we live. And so we come to this Scripture, the hardest part of Joseph's story. Let us begin with prayer. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. God never speaks to Joseph. Never speaks to Joseph. God is talkative in the book of Genesis. God has a lot to say to Adam and to Eve, and then to Cain, and to Abel, and then to Noah, and to Hagar, and to Abraham, and Jacob. Each of them was called by name by God and heard words of promise, sometimes of hope, and you know, sometimes of challenge or redirection. But even then, at least they heard from God. Joseph's grandfather, Abraham, heard from God. When his name was still Abram, God told him, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to all of the families on the earth. And God would keep talking to Abraham over and over again, making this same promise for the rest of Abraham's life. And then Abraham's son, Joseph's father, Jacob. Well, Jacob heard from God. One night when he was traveling through an unfamiliar land, God spoke to him and said, I am with you now, and I will be with you always, and I will protect you wherever you go. Not a bad message to get from God, but to Joseph, God says nothing. Not here in the passage we read in this chapter of Joseph's story, and not anywhere in all of the 14 chapters out of the 50 Genesis has the 14 chapters given over to tell the story of Joseph and his brothers. God is there. God is active in Joseph's story, but God is silent. The closest Joseph comes is at the very beginning of his story, still a teenager, living at home with his family and his many brothers when he has a strange dream one night and then another. But still, it's only dreams. When his father and his grandfather and all the generations before him heard God's voice, it was with clarity. While Joseph is visited at night by sheaves of corn and the sun and the moon and the stars. Now he understands them to be a sign of a great destiny, interpreting them to mean that he will rule over his family and his brothers one day. But his brothers are unconvinced and they think Joseph's arrogance must be impacting his interpretation. 
And for years, there's hardly any way to tell who was right and who was wrong because they're just dreams. Who knows what they mean? In response to the dreams, and perhaps to thwart the meaning of the dreams, Joseph's jealous brothers decide to get rid of him forever, planning first to kill him, but ultimately selling him as a slave to traders passing through the area. And that is where we have picked up the story today, as the now-trafficked Joseph finds himself being sold to an Egyptian official named Potiphar. And we would be concerned, that seems pretty bad, but the text is quick to assure us, saying the Lord was with Joseph. I wonder if anyone let Joseph know. When his life was spiraling downward, did anyone tell him that God was with him? Could he believe that God was circling downward with him? And if he could believe, was that any comfort to him? Did he wonder how it could be, if it could be, that terrible things could happen and keep happening to him if God were with him? In ancient times, the path to Egypt always went down. Egypt was known even then for the pyramids, the pyramids which were the burial places for the Egyptian kings, which spoke to the nation's fascination with death and the dead, enough that Egypt was known then to the neighboring peoples as the land of the dead. And so Joseph was taken down into Egypt. Down into Egypt, Genesis says, Because down is the only direction that will take you from the land of the living to the land of the dead. Joseph's brothers might as well have killed him. The alternative was turning out to be a slave in hell, the land of the dead. Centuries later, an early church father would say that as long as hell held even a single sinner, he knew where Christ would be. And for as long as Joseph was enslaved in the land of the dead, God was with him. But God's presence didn't keep things from getting worse and worse for Joseph. Joseph, who thrived as best he could even in the land of the dead, at least for a moment. Joseph was a slave, but a successful one, one who rose as high as he could to become the administrator of Potiphar's entire household. Everything Potiphar had, he placed in Joseph's hands. Everything except for one thing. My master has put everything he has under my supervision, Joseph says, and he hasn't denied me anything except you, since you are his wife. The church has not always managed stories of sexual assault well, neither in real life nor in Scripture. And this story, unfortunately, is very much included in that, is presented at times as though it were the archetype to be applied to every allegation of sexual misconduct, as if every accused man were Joseph and every woman was Potiphar's wife. The problems with using the story this way, though, are abundant. And scripturally, it shouldn't be ignored that this is the only story of its type throughout the Bible, while stories of the inverse are frequent. And still today, rigorous research has consistently shown that false allegations of sexual assault are consistently very, very low, ranging from 10% down to just 2%. And so to use this single story to discredit survivors and as an excuse to ignore their stories betrays both the witness of Scripture and our current reality, making a bludgeon out of Scripture and wielding it in horrendously harmful ways. Now, it is true, Potiphar's wife 
makes a false allegation against Joseph. And this is important, but to fully understand the story and the implications it might still have on us today, we have to understand the full context provided by Scripture. Potiphar's wife is not presented to us as any sort of seductress, as though she is trying to tempt Joseph away, no matter how often we paint her that way in retellings of this story. In the Hebrew, the original text of Genesis, she speaks two words to Joseph. It's not an intricately intricately crafted invitation. It is a blunt instruction, a command to a slave owned by her family and required to serve her. Lay down with me. Two words, to which Joseph responds breathlessly, 35 words in the Hebrew, giving voice to every possible rationale that might convince his master's wife. He has too great a responsibility to do something so foolish. She is married to Potiphar. It would be a terrible thing, a foolish thing, a sin against God on high. He throws everything he has into convincing her that she was asking, demanding, instructing a terrible thing. But she continues day after day. And so it would have been an awful thing for Joseph, a terrible thing. But what could he have done? She had all of the power in that situation, and he had none. This makes all of the difference. And the inequality in that relationship of power is a key element in this story. Joseph has no ability to defend himself or even explain himself. He is effectively silenced even when he is accused. No one ever asks or looks to him in response of what happens because Potiphar's wife has the power of position over him. And through this lens, the story suddenly becomes extremely applicable in a modern setting, for all who has, whose silence has been coerced at the hands of the more powerful. In fact, this story is uncomfortably similar to a lynching, though with a barely better ending. With Joseph's clothes and hands, Potiphar's wife cries out to the others in the house, all of the Egyptian servants serving in Potiphar's household. And she says, look at how Potiphar has brought a Hebrew man to play with us. Her use of his race to coalesce anger against Joseph is intentional. And she repeats a similar line later to her husband, but crafted just a bit different, specifically to galvanize his anger against Joseph. This is what your Hebrew slave did to me, she says. This week was the anniversary of the trial and the acquittal of the men who killed Emmett Till in 1955. Till was a 14-year-old black teenager who was abducted, tortured, and killed in gruesome fashion because a white storekeeper alleged that he had whistled at her. She later admitted to lying, but the killers remain uncharged. And Till's mother, in the midst of her grief, decided to have an open-casket viewing of her son, and the unfiltered view of racism's impact on black Americans would inspire Rosa Parks to uh, protest on a bus later that year and would inspire the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his work towards civil rights. And the theologian James Cone tells the story about how Till's mother made this decision because she heard a voice encouraging her to let her son's story change things. And Cone writes that the voice she heard was the voice of the resurrected Jesus. It spoke of hope that although white racists could take her son's life, they could not deprive his life and death of an ultimate meaning. 
as in the resurrection of the crucified one, God could transmute defeat into triumph, ugliness into beauty, despair into hope, and the cross into the resurrection. Eventually, Joseph's story, too, would end with hope. God was with him, still in prison, and Joseph would eventually become the second in command over all of Egypt to provide for the entire country through a famine. And his brothers would eventually find him in Egypt when they came seeking food, and they would come to Joseph, and Joseph would tell them that he had forgiven them because what they had meant for evil, God had used for good. Is that what it means for God to be with us in terrible times? That something good might one day come from it. Perhaps this seems to be what God does, transforming defeat into triumph, ugliness into beauty, despair into hope. It is through the cross that the resurrection comes. But it's not an easy thing to say. It's not an easy thing to live. And it is an impossible view to force into any given situation. God is assuredly with the oppressed, the falsely accused, the unjustly harmed. God is with any who endure pain and suffering in any measure. But that does not undo the trauma endured or make it any better that it had happened. Surely Joseph did not say to his brothers, thank you for selling me into slavery. Surely Joseph did not say thank you to Potiphar's wife. Only that out of those terrible and tragic things, God had worked something good in the end. It took Joseph years, perhaps, to decide that God was working it all for good and may have taken him years to be confident that God was with him. But in the silences, when tragedies are happening, perhaps the invitation is not to force it into something good before it's time, but simply to step into the pain of the moment and those experiencing it, not to flee to better places, but to know that when someone is living through hell on earth, that's where God will be too. And so if we want to be with God, if we want to see God working with things and drawing them somewhere better, then that's where we need to be, too. The beginning of the story as we heard it today says God was with Joseph. And then terrible things happened. And at the end of the story, God was still with Joseph. The story was continuing. And God was still there. Perhaps this might sometimes be the only truth to be held on to, and perhaps it feels like a frail truth, an insignificant one, a barely there one, but it may yet be the only one to hold. A hope that is thin but endures, a promise that will never leave, even when it seems so small. God is with us. In the midst of the most terrible things, God is with us. And if it ever seems that God is silent, if it ever seems that God is not at work, do we not know where God will be? Can we not find those who are suffering and in pain? Find those in the crucible 
of life and join them as we see how God might turn it into something better. God was with Joseph. And many years later, Joseph said to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God used for good. May it forever be so. Amen. Friends, I invite us to continue in worship as we sing together.